So let me ask, as I begin here, two questions. With whom would you love to have dinner with if you could choose anyone, anywhere, from any moment of history? Could be a loved one that's passed away or it could be a historical figure. You could go to their home and they could present dinner for you or you could go to a nice restaurant where the best steak is there and you could eat and enjoy. Who would you choose? Would it be a sports figure like Russell Wilson who leads the NFL in touchdown passes through three weeks? Or Michael Jordan? Or would it be a politician Would it be the current president or the former president? Would it be John F. Kennedy or George Washington? Maybe a musical artist like Jimi Hendrix from Seattle or a Beatle. Who would you choose? What would you talk about? I'm sure you get to know them in a a special new way. You'd have their attention and just be you and this dinner and the intimacy to ask maybe those lingering questions that you've been dying to ask. Who would you choose? Now let me ask you, with whom would you hate to have dinner with? A person that you least imagine having dinner with. Perhaps it's the current president or their former president. Perhaps it's the homeless person that you see begging for money on the corner on your way home. Maybe it's a a dangerous person like a member of the mafia or someone you find utterly despicable like a drug dealer or the CEO of the largest pornography website or the leader of the LGBTQ or the president of Planned Parenthood. Who is it that you would be mortified to see you and them at dinner, sharing a meal. What if you enjoyed their company? What if they were interesting to talk with? What if you learned something new about them? What if you saw them as human? Sharing a meal with people means something. You share a portion of your life with them. You open up yourself to them in small ways. It's intimate. It's real. It's necessary for humans to to eat as human. It shows our frailty and our needs as a human. To share a meal means we share something in common. When I met my wife and met her family, it was through a meal. My mother-in-law is a fantastic cook, and meals at their home were not a eat it and beat it. They would sit around the table for a long time. And my wife has continued that tradition in our home. Each meal in our home is an embodiment of her love for me and our, and our kids and for the guests that join us. Food matters. Meals matter. Meals are, are full of significance. One author commented, few acts are more expressive of, of companionship than a shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one. Sitting around a meal means something. And this is where we find Jesus and his teaching for us this morning. So here's the main idea. Here's the main thought from this passage. Jesus' call for sinners to follow him 
rewrites conventional social norms and shatters the assumptions on who should enter the kingdom of God. Jesus' call for sinners to follow him rewrites conventional social norms and shatters the assumptions on who should enter the kingdom of God. Maybe you think you know who are the ones that Jesus saves. Maybe you've cornered the market and the population of the kingdom of God. But Jesus is here this morning to burst those notions of who you think deserves salvation. And there'll be two questions here as we walk through this text. Real simple outline, question one and question two. As we look at Luke chapter five, the verses 27 through the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter five and look with me at verse 27. We'll read the first section. This is question one and talk through it here. Look at verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When we come to this section, it, it, it's, it's right after Jesus leaves the house where he heals the paralytic. We're not sure how long this, this time frame is. And, and he heads and he sees his tax collector, Levi, whom we'll know later is Matthew. And he calls him to salvation, and Levi follows him. And later, as I just read, Jesus is invited over to Levi's house for a party. And he's seen there reclining. It means that Jesus wasn't repulsed by these people. Reclining means he has his feet up. He's relaxed. He's enjoying a meal with these people. With tax collectors and sinners. What is a sinner? This should be a capital S, sinners. Not just pride and crankiness that we suffer. These were notorious sinners who slept with the wrong people, who made money in all the wrong ways, who drank too much and consumed drugs. These weren't good people and they didn't care. They were not upstanding Jews. And the Pharisees and scribes ask a simple question in verse 30, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? That's the first question. Levi was a tax collector. Tax collectors worked for the hated imperialists of Rome, which made them traitors. In the Roman Empire, the local residents, unless enjoying some rare exemption, were subjected to many taxes. There were occasion, on occasion poll taxes and road and bridge taxes and taxes on merchandise and property taxes. And a tax collector here was recruited to purchase the tax for a stretch of road and then give that money up front to Rome, but then they had the freedom to charge as much as they'd like from those that would travel that stretch of road. It's like we were given the chance to purchase a portion of Meridian in front of us, up front to Pierce County, and then we could charge every car as it went by. And they would charge people, certain people who looked desperate, they would charge them more. The cost was never quite the same, kind of like flying in an airplane, right? 
depending on how desperate you are to fly, the price may go up. Tax collectors at this time were regarded as gangsters, betrayers. They were considered as the lowest of the depraved. They were not even allowed in the temple. They could be beaten without being arrested. The person could beat them and not be charged. They could be slandered without cause. And people could even try to steal their money back if given the chance and not be prosecuted. Tax collectors had to be on watch at all times. They were viewed as completely untrustworthy, not worthy of your time and effort. Jews hated tax collectors because they helped the Romans. And the Jews were looking for the day when God would defeat the Romans and reestablish his kingdom. So it wasn't just Jews versus Romans. It was God versus Romans in their mind. And here is Jesus walking out of the meeting, healing the paralytic, walks over in front of Levi's tax booth and says to him, follow me. And I don't know about you, but his response is astonishing. He left everything, rose and followed him. He was rich. He left everything. Are you confused at all or have been by the doctrine of election? Because this is it right here. Jesus elected Levi to salvation and he follows him. Election is the sovereign choice of God. Before Levi ever decided to follow God, God decided to make him one of his followers. If you're a Christian here, one truth that the Bible continually teaches is God chose you before you chose him. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that who, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He chose Levi by sheer grace. There's no merit in him. He was a swindler, a thief, a tax collector. All by himself, he, he gained no merit with God. But for by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God did the saving of Levi. There's a general calling of people. That's done here, Lord willing, every Sunday when the gospel is preached. But there's an effectual call, and that's what we've seen here in Levi and Luke 5. And everyone has this effectual call if they're a Christian. And what's an effectual calling? Well, question 31 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches us. It says, effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. This was the call that Levi received that day. Up until that point, he was living a life of greed, of more money, more stuff, filled with hatred of people in order to build up a comfortable life. And, and God now snatches him out of that life of selfishness and self-centeredness and saves him when there was no hope for him. And Jesus saves Levi. And the text says that Levi leaves everything behind to follow Christ. Walking away from loyalties that would compete with the loyalty to Jesus. And he is abandoning his former ways of thinking and living. Not, not sure really where the path would lead him. 
But what does he do first in the text? But he throws a party and invites all of his friends. Most probable is that these men were his colleagues and companions. And the reason is he wants to introduce his friends to the one that changed his life. J.C. Ryle said, the soul which has been truly called of God will earnestly desire that others may experience the same calling. A converted man will not wish to go to heaven alone. Amen? Thank you. Many of us, after meeting Christ, we're excited to invite others also. But then maybe after months and years, that sensation has waned. You know, as new Christians, we're, we're charged up to share with others that Christ has delivered us from the bondage of sin, and we wished others to be free as well. But then months pass, and, and no one wants to listen, no one responds in years and then decades. Friends, when was the last time we invited someone to consider Jesus Christ for salvation? Are we like Philip who goes to find Nathaniel to say, we have found the Christ? Or have we grown comfortable in our relationship with God? And are we hoarding Jesus to ourselves? Why is it hard for us to share the gospel with others? Why have we grown comfortable in our salvation and uncomfortable in sharing our salvation with others. Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at, let, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. May we be challenged by Levi's example for us this morning in this text and to be about the business of sharing the gospel with others. Well, Jesus joins the party here at Levi's house, and this is a big deal. Jewish food laws not only symbolized cultural boundaries, but they also created them. It wasn't easy for Jews to eat with Gentiles, and it still isn't today. You couldn't be sure you were being offered kosher food, being prepared in a kosher way. And for Jesus to join a Gentile dinner was seriously frowned upon by the Jewish leaders. But what would you expect Jesus to do? Where would you expect Jesus to go if he came to Seattle in 2020? Do you think he would only come to the church services? To the large Christian conferences? To the prayer breakfast in Tacoma? Or would he have coffee with the leader of the LGBT group in Seattle? Would he have lunch with an abortion activist? And what would you say to him if he did, if you saw him? Jesus, those are the people we're fighting. Those are the bad people, Jesus. What are you doing with them? Do you approve of their lifestyle now? Are you approving of their voting record, of the candidates that they love and they endorse? Why are you eating with them? 
Why are you even spending time with them? They're against us. Aren't you with us? I mean, to be fair to the Pharisees, this is an understandable question that they ask. They are truly dumbfounded. I mean, just imagine how you would feel if Jesus showed up and started criticizing the church-going people while frequently going to parties hosted by sexually immoral drug dealers and terrorist sympathies. My guess is that we would be scandalized just as much as they were. But Jesus has an answer for them, both to challenge and to confuse them. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't come as a politician. He didn't come as a teacher only or even as a leader. He came as a physician, he says. And no one asks a doctor why they spend so much time with sick people. That's their job. That's what they're called to do, to be around sick people. And Jesus is saying to us in these sentences, I am the great physician of souls. I have come to heal the spiritually sick. And so he goes where the sinners are. And he hangs out with crooks and prostitutes and notorious sinners because he knew that they would never come to him. Jesus knew why he came to earth and it wasn't to get friends from the religious elite. This meal surrounded by sinners would cost him everything. He would die for them because these are the types of people he came for. Jesus didn't die for the Pharisees and scribes so that they could just add a little salvation on top of the works. When Jesus says that I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, he is not calling the Pharisees righteous. He's, he's poking fun at their expense. He's calling out the fact that they believe they're righteous enough. That they believe they've done everything to gain entrance into heaven. And they look down on others because they keep all the rules and they don't. And in essence, they're asking Jesus to behave like a doctor who avoids sick people. And such a doctor clearly couldn't do his work. Jesus, the Savior, can't do his work unless he's with sinful people. And what Jesus is saying is that I'm not here to heal people who think that they're perfectly healthy. Jesus didn't come to spend time with people who had it all together. Jesus came for people who know that they need him. So there are two groups of people here this morning in this text. Sick sinners and healthy righteous. Which are you? I mean, that's the million dollar question. Nothing else matters this morning. But the answer to this question, which one are you? The healthy righteous have learned in life to say, I'm not, I'm not sick. I don't need any help. I'm good. Friend, you need to look at yourself this morning. Look at yourself before God, who is holy and just and honest and loving. Do you see yourself as good before him? Do you see yourself as healthy, spiritually speaking? Do you see yourself as righteous? 
Or can you acknowledge that you are sick and unhealthy? That you have fallen short, that you are weak and frail and unable to stand upright before a God all by yourself? This is the vital question this morning. As long as we keep insisting that we are righteous, we will never see our need for the gospel cure. See, the Pharisees did this. They divided the world into two categories, the righteous, them, and the sinners, everyone else. And if Jesus came for sinners, he didn't come for them. Friends, you maybe have come this morning knowing that you're not a follower of Jesus, and of course you think to yourself, I'm not that bad. You don't see yourself as a terrible sinner, oppressing people, stealing from them. You, you help people when you're able. You even serve when you have opportunities. You're, you're pleasant. You're a decent person. You're fun to be around. But perhaps, friend, you live with a self-perception problem and you're sick and you don't even realize it. Every person in this room is a sinner. Every one of us. No one's exempt. And so if you look over your life, do you see the guilt, the, the pride, the bad habits, the uncontrollable mouth, the needless spending, the out-of-control anger, the anxiety that fills your days? And you keep striving for something to be fulfilled, and you keep coming up empty. Friends, the first step is the diagnosis. That's the first step towards a cure. Only those who know they are sick can be healed. If you keep denying it, you will keep living in it. Luke will give us later in, in chapter 18 two pictures of people. Another tax collector understanding himself to be sick and another assuming he was healthy. In Luke 18, it says he also told the parable of some who trusted in themselves that were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus says two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector made a bad choice to be a tax collector, but do you see how God used it? He drove him to cry out for mercy. And the word mercy in this passage literally translated means to, to be propitiated. The man did not ask for just mercy. He cried out for God's just wrath against him to be abated. He recognized who he was and what he deserved. And the mercy he desired was the mercy that could, could be given only when a sacrifice stood in his place and took away God's wrath. 
This man was a sinner who knew he needed forgiveness. And so he stood up from his tax collector's booth and walked to the temple and prayed, God, be propitiated so that you can love me. And my sins mean you cannot love me and remain just. He understood himself to need a savior. And he cries out to God. And friend, God in his grace and his sovereignty brought you here this morning to sit under the preaching of his word. And this great message of the scriptures is that we who were made to know God, we have been separated ourselves by God because of our sin. And we deserve his judgment by the way we live. But God in his great love in Jesus Christ has come and lived a life deserving no punishment and he has taken our sins upon himself on the cross. The sins of of all those from every nation who repent and believe in him. And he calls us now to repent and to believe. And in my Christian friends this morning, you need to continue to strive to see your sin and to acknowledge it. It's easy to allow self-righteousness to seep into our life. You've grown and, and learned a lot in your Christian life. But the danger is that you begin to believe that I'm not that bad. Maybe you wouldn't say that with your mouth, but you believe it in your heart. Friends, are you more or less aware of your need for Christ today? Are you more aware or less aware than a month ago? Or a year ago? See, as we walk with Christ and read his word, we will grow more and more aware of our need for him. And we will grow more and more in our appreciation of the good news of the gospel. Here's one litmus test. I'm sure there's others. Are you critical of others, judgmental, aware of everyone else's faults more than your own? Do you spend more time rehearsing the sins of others more than recognizing your own? Have you begun to believe that someone else is a bigger sinner than you are? You know, maybe you should ask someone really close to you. Perhaps they'll be honest. Perhaps they might, but maybe you'll get a, a twinkle of response in their eyes as they don't want to speak. But ask them to evaluate your life. Friends, do you regularly find yourself amazed at the grace of God? Do you find it inconceivable that God would save you? Do you rehearse the gospel, the good news of Jesus on a regular basis? These practices will bring fruit in the Christian life. Well, that's the first question. 
Question two. And I thought deeply about this during the week. What does the first section of this passage have to do with the second section? The question of fasting. Because he ends here in verse 39, and we'll read it here in a moment. He says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. So what is Jesus getting at here? It's perplexing. But I've come to the conclusion, at least for this morning, that Jesus is simply laying out that there is a new covenant that's coming. And the old way, the the way of the Pharisees, may seem easier and preferred, but Jesus is going to shatter the norms. He's establishing a new way. It says there in verse 33, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. It seems the old would represent the Judaism of the Pharisees, and the new is what Jesus is bringing. And they're mired in in a mindset that clings to the old and rejects the unexpected. They only wanted a Messiah that would come and destroy the Romans, the Gentile rule over them. But here's Jesus eating with the Gentiles, relaxing with them, and he's shattering their expectations. I mean, going back again to Levi's dinner party, put yourself in the Pharisee's spot. Surely this man, Jesus, can't be from God if he's hobnobbing with these Gentiles. Unless, unless God is doing something new. Something so new that it doesn't fit within their neat categories. Unless God is doing something so gracious that it takes them by complete surprise. If you go back even further in chapter 5, last week we talked about Jesus touching a leper. Normally when a person uh, did that, they became unclean. But Jesus doesn't become unclean. Instead, the leper becomes clean. And this is God's grace vividly seen. God welcomes the untouchable and the unhealable. And suddenly it's, it isn't uncleanness that's contagious, but Jesus' holiness that's contagious. See, Jesus isn't rejecting the purity laws of Leviticus. He isn't preaching against them. He's showing them that they're being fulfilled right before their eyes. And in the book of Leviticus, it pointed us to the need of a holy people. And now we have Jesus who will atone for our sin and baptize us with the Holy Spirit and write God's law on our hearts. And the Levitical style of cleanliness is being superseded. And earlier, Jesus not only heals the paralyzed man, but he forgives his sin. And forgiveness of sin at that time was focused on the rituals of the temple. And Jesus forgives with just a word, with no reference to the temple. And what the temple symbolized was now giving way to the new reality to which it pointed, him. And in these verses, the Pharisees are asking why Jesus' disciples don't fast. And the Jews fasted to call upon God to come in mercy, to, to liberate the nation, to come and rescue them from their oppression. But what if, what if God's Messiah, full of mercy and grace, is here, sitting at the table with the tax collectors and sinners? 
And Jesus makes the point explicitly in these verses. Something new is happening. Something so new it cannot be added to the old. Just like you can't add new cloth to an old cloth. It's not a revision to an old system. Grace can't be integrated with self-righteousness. You can't add on to your good works. It's radically different, radically new. See, Jesus didn't come to patch up things that were missing in the Jewish religion. He was bringing something new. He was bringing a new season, new reason to celebrate like guests at a wedding. The salvation that Jesus has, has come to bring demands fresh thinking about what it means to live as God's people. But only the people who saw their, their spiritual need could rejoice at salvation that Jesus was bringing. For others who were quite content with themselves and their religion, this, this new wine was no cause for celebration. They want the old stuff. They were fine with the old stuff. Before a wedding, you would fast in preparation for the wedding feast. But when the bridegroom comes, the cake is cut, the food is brought out, the wine is served, and we celebrate. And the the Pharisees are mourning over the absence of God in his kingdom. And they miss, they miss Jesus right in front of them. They miss the Messiah. His kingdom is coming and fasting is giving way to feasting. And these teachers weren't ready for the change. They weren't ready for the newness of the kingdom of God. But Christ will change people. We'll see some of them being changed right before our eyes in this gospel. Christ changes people. And he can change you. Unless you cling to the old. These two lists here, the gracious and welcoming and feasting and rejoicing and recognizing your need compared with religious and exclusive and unwelcoming and fasting and grumbling and self-righteous. Are you living as someone who belongs to the new way? Are you content in living your life the way you always have? And some people try to, to patch Jesus on to their life. Some people try to bottle him up. Some people try, some people even refuse him in every way. And this is the point of the parable. They don't want to see their need for Christ. They're content with the old life. And they refuse to taste the new wine of salvation. They refuse Christ. Well, how do we apply this message? Friends, we can't do the work of pointing sinners to the Savior unless we spend time with them. The first thing Levi does after following Jesus is to throw a party. And religious people often struggle to know how to engage with sinners. We ask, is it, is it okay to go out with them after work? Can we attend events with them? Can we have a drink with them? What about this place or that place? And these questions come from a good and godly concern for holiness and for Christian witness. I understand this. But Jesus' actions here challenge our notions of holiness. 
If we think of holiness only as primarily a separation, we end up isolating ourselves from people we hope to reach, and we find ourselves at odds with Jesus' example here. If we attempt to separate ourselves completely from sinners, where will we go? To be holy by having no contact with sinners means that we would have to completely leave this world. And we cannot call people to repentance if we're never with them. We cannot reach sinners without going to where sinners are. They're most likely not to come to where we are. We'll have to go to them. And that's what we see in Jesus' example here. Our Lord attends Levi's party with the spiritual well-being of sinners in mind. And, And I want you to know, it's a party celebrating Levi's new life found in Jesus Christ. The Lord doesn't sin with them. It's not stated. Rather, he seeks to save them. But we also need to be wise. We need to know our limits. We are not the Savior. And so, friends, I want to encourage you to know your limits and know the temptations that you live with as sinners in this world. If you're easily tempted to alcohol, you do not need to go with your colleagues to the bar after work. You should probably avoid that setting. To give no room to the devil or make provision for the flesh. But we also, when we spend time with people in this world, should keep it with a redemptive purpose in mind. We're, we're not going into the world. We're not going to spend time with those who know Christ simply to hang out, but to point them to Jesus. See, the message of this passage means we should start to become like Jesus, to be bold in our evangelism and kind in the way that we engage the world. We should love the things he loves. We should show mercy to others by calling the spiritual sick to the great physician that can heal them. By calling sinners to repentance. Friends, we need to love lost people. And Jesus hung out with the messy and the sloppy and the inconvenient people. And he befriended people to show them the love of God. And we need to befriend people who need Jesus. So I'll end by asking this question. Who are you going to invite over for dinner this week? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that instructs our hearts and our minds Father, we thank you for your love for us. God, we ask that you would forgive us for our coldness of heart. That when we see sinners in this world, we flinch from wanting to speak with them. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for our sense of self-sufficiency for our sense of self-righteousness. Oh God, I pray that none of us would be like the Pharisee who is so tragically and foolishly blind to his own need for you. Oh God, you would give us hearts like the tax collector who knows something, something of the extent of his need. And we pray this so that we might find all of our needs met in you and you alone. 
Help us to love you and to be faithful this week. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen.